Chapter Eleven, Part Two of the Guns of Shiloh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Guns of Shiloh by Joseph A. Altshuler. Chapter Eleven: The Southern Attack, Part Two. Thus another gray day of winter wore away, and the two forces drew a little nearer to each other. Far away, the rival presidents at Washington and Richmond were wondering what was happening to their armies in the dark wilderness of western Tennessee. The night was more quiet than the one that had just gone before. The booming of the cannon, as regular as the tolling of funeral bells, had ceased with the darkness, but in its place the fierce winter wind had begun to blow again. Dick, relaxed and weary after his day's work, hovered over one of the fires, and was grateful for the warmth. He had trodden miles through slush and snow and frozen earth, and he was plastered to the waist with frozen mud, which now began to soften and fall off before the coals. Warner, who had been on active duty, too, also sank to rest with a sigh of relief. "'It's battle tomorrow, Dick,' he said, "'and I don't care. As it didn't come off today, the chances are at least eighty percent that it will happen the next day. You say that when you were lying in the snow last night, Dick, you saw your uncle and that he's a colonel in the rebel army. It's queer.' You're wrong, George. It isn't queer. We are on opposite sides, serving at the same place, and it's natural that we should meet sometime or other. Ah, I tell you, you fellows from the New England and the other northern states don't appreciate the sacrifices that we of the border states make for the Union. Up there you are safe from invasion. Your houses are not on the battlefields. You are all on one side. You don't have to fight against your own kind, the people you hold most dear. And when the war is over, whether we win or lose, you'll go back to unravaged regions. You wrong me there, Dick. I have thought of it. It's the people of the border, whether north or south, who pay the biggest price. We risk our lives, but you risk your lives also, and everything else, too. Dick wrapped himself in a heavy blanket, pillowed his head on a log before one of the fires, and dozed a while. His nerves had been tried too hard to permit of easy sleep. He awoke now and then, and over a wide area saw the sinking fires and the moving forms of men. He felt that a sense of uneasiness pervaded the officers. He knew that many of them considered their forces inadequate for the siege of a fortress defended by a large army, but he felt with the sincerity of conviction also that Grant would never withdraw. He heard from Colonel Winchester about midnight in one of his wakeful intervals that General Grant was going down the river to see Commodore Foote. The brave leader of the fleet had been wounded severely in the last fight with the fort, and the general wished to confer with him about the plan of operations. But Dick heard only vaguely. The statement made no impression upon him at that time. Yet he was conscious that the feeling of uneasiness still pervaded the officers. He noticed it in Colonel Winchester's tone, and he noticed it too in the voices of Colonel Newcomb and Major Hertford, who came presently to confer with Winchester. But the boy fell into his doze again, while they were talking. Warner and Pennington, who had done less arduous duties, were sound asleep near him, the low flames now and then throwing a red light on their tanned faces. It seemed to him that it was about halfway between midnight and morning, and the hum and murmur had sunk to a mere minor note. But his sleepy eyes still saw the dim forms of men passing about, and then he fell into his uneasy doze again. When he awoke once more it was misty and dark, but he felt that the dawn was near. In the east a faint tint of silver showed through the clouds and vapors. Heavy banks of fog were rising from the Cumberland and the flooded marshes. The earth began to soften as if unlocking from the hard frost of the night. Colonel Winchester stood near him, and his position showed that he was intensely awake. He was bent slightly forward, and every nerve and muscle was strained as if he were eager to see and hear something which he knew was there, 
but which he could not yet either see or hear. Dick threw off his blanket and sprang to his feet. At the same moment Colonel Winchester motioned him to awaken Warner and Pennington, which he did at once in speed and silence. That tint of silver, the lining of the fogs and vapors, shone more clearly through, and spread across the east. Dick knew now that the dawn was at hand. The loud but mellow notes of a trumpet came from a distant point toward Donelson, and then others to right and left joined and sang the same mellow song. But it lasted only for a minute, and it was lost in the rapid crackle of rifles which spread like a running fire along a front of miles. The sun in the east swung clear of the earth, its beams shooting away through fogs and vapors. The dawn had come, and the attack had come with it. The southerners, ready at last, were rushing from their fort and works, and with all the valor and fire that distinguished them upon countless occasions, they were hurling themselves upon their enemy. The fortress poured out regiment after regiment. Chafing so long upon the defense, southern youth was now at its best. Attacking, not attacked, the farmer lads felt the spirit of battle blaze high in their breasts. The long, terrible rebel yell, destined to be heard upon so many a desperate field, fierce upon its lower note, fierce upon its higher note, as fierce as ever upon its dying note, and coming back in echoes still as fierce, swelled over forest and fort, marsh and river. The crackling fire of the pickets ceased. They had been driven back in a few moments upon the army, but the whole regiment of Colonel Winchester was now up, rifle in hand, and on either side of it, other regiments steadied themselves also to receive the living torrent. The little band of Pennsylvanians were on the left of the Kentuckians, and were practically a part of them. Colonel Newcomb and Major Hertford stood amid their men, encouraging them to receive the shock. But Dick had time only for a glance at these old comrades of his. The southern wave, crested with fire and steel, was rolling swiftly upon them, and as the southern troops rushed on they began to fire as fast as they could pull the trigger, fire and pull again. Bullets and sheets struck in the Union ranks. Hundreds of men went down. Dick heard the thud of lead and steel on flesh and the sudden cries of those who were struck. It needs no small courage to hold fast against more than ten thousand men rushing forward at full speed and bent upon victory or death. Dick felt all the pulses in his temples beating hard, and he had a horrible impulse to break and run, but pride kept him firm. As an officer he had a small sword, and snatching it out he waved it, while at the same time he shouted to the men to meet the charge. The Union troops returned the fire. Thousands of bullets were sent against the ranks of the rushing enemy. The gunners sprang to their guns, and the deep roar of the cannon rose above the crash of the small arms. But the southern troops, the rebel yell still rolling through the woods, came on at full speed and struck the Union front. It seemed to Dick that he was conscious of an actual physical shock. Tanned faces and gleaming eyes were almost against his own. He looked into the muzzles of rifles, and he saw the morning sun flashing along the edges of bayonets. But the regiment, although torn by bullets, did not give ground. The charge shivered against them, and the southern troops fell back. Yet it was only for a moment. They came again to be driven back as before, and then once more they charged, while their resolute foe swung forward to meet them rank to rank. Dick was not conscious of much except that he shouted continuously to the men to stand firm, and wondered now and then why he had not been hit. The Union men and their enemy were reeling back and forth, neither winning, neither losing, while the thunder of battle along a long and curving front beat heavily on the drums of every ear. The smoke, low down, was scattered by the cannon and rifles, but above it gathered in a great cloud that seemed to be shot with fire. The two colonels, Winchester and Newcomb, were able and valiant men. Despite their swelling losses, they always filled up the ranks and held fast to the ground upon which they had stood when they were attacked. But for the present they had no knowledge how the battle was going elsewhere. The enemy just before them allowed no idle moments. Yet Grant, as happened later on at Shiloh, was taken by surprise. When the first roar of the battle broke with the dawn, he was away conferring with the wounded naval commander Foote. 
His right, under McClernand, had been caught napping, and eight thousand southern troops striking it with a tremendous impact just as the men snatched up their arms, drove it back in heavy loss and confusion. Its disaster was increased when a southern general, Baldwin, led a strong column down a deep ravine near the river and suddenly hurled it upon the wavering Union flank. Whole regiments retreated now, and guns were lost. The southern officers, their faces glowing, shouted to each other that the battle was won. And still the combat raged without the Union commander, Grant, although he was coming now as fast as he could with the increasing roar of conflict to draw him on. The battle was lost to the north, but it might be won back again by a general who would not quit. Only the bulldog in Grant, the tenacious death grip, could save him now. Dick and his friends suddenly became conscious that both on their right and left the thunder of battle was moving back upon the Union camp. They realized now that they were only the segment of a circle extending forward practically within the Union lines, and that the combat was going against them. The word was given to retreat, lest they be surrounded, and they fell back slowly, disputing with desperation every foot of ground that they gave up. Yet they left many fallen behind. A fourth of the regiment had been killed or wounded already, and there were tears in the eyes of Colonel Winchester as he looked over the torn ranks of his gallant men. Now the Southerners, meaning to drive victory home, were bringing up their reserves and pouring fresh troops upon the shattered Union front. They would have swept everything away, but in the nick of time a fresh Union brigade arrived also, supported the yielding forces, and threw itself upon the enemy. But Grant had not yet come. It seemed that in the beginning fortune played against this man of destiny, throwing all her tricks in favor of his opponents. The single time that he was away the attack had been made, and if he would win back a lost battle there was great need to hurry. The southern troops, exultant and full of fire and spirit, continually rolled back their adversaries. They wheeled more guns from the fort into position and opened heavily on the yielding foe. If they were beaten back at any time, they always came on again, a restless wave, crested with fire and steel. Dick's regiment continued to give ground slowly, and had no choice but to do so or be destroyed. It seemed to him now that he beheld the wreck of all things. Was this to be bull run over again? His throat and eyes burned from the smoke and powder, and his face was black with grime. His lips were like fire to the touch of each other. He staggered in the smoke against someone and saw that it was Warner. "'Have we lost?' he cried. "'Have we lost after doing so much?' The lips of the Vermonter parted in a kind of savage grin. "'I won't say we've lost,' he shouted in reply. "'But I can't see anything we've won.' Then he lost Warner in the smoke, and the regiment retreated yet further. It was impossible to preserve cohesion or keep a line formed. The Southerners never ceased to press upon them with overwhelming might. Pillow, now decisive in action, continually accumulated new forces upon the northern right. Every position that McClernand had held at the opening of the battle was now taken, and the Confederate general was planning to surround and destroy the whole Union army. Already he was sending messengers to the telegraph with news for Johnston of his complete victory. But the last straw had not yet been laid upon the camel's back. McClernand was beaten, but the hardy men of Kentucky, East Tennessee, and the Northwest still offered desperate resistance. Conspicuous among the defenders was the regiment of young pioneers from Nebraska, hunters, Indian fighters, boys of twenty or less, who had suffered already every form of hardship. They stood undaunted amid the showers of bullets and shells and cried to the others to stand with them. Yet the condition of the Union army steadily grew worse. Dick himself, in all the smoke and shouting and confusion, could see it. The regiments that formed the corps of resistance were being pared down continually. There was a steady dribble of fugitives to the rear, and those who fought felt themselves going back always, like one who slips on ice. The sun, far up the heavens, now poured down beams upon the vast cloud of smoke and vapor in which the two armies fought. 
The few people left in Dover, red-hot for the south, cheered madly as they saw their enemy driven further and further away. Grant, the man of destiny, ill-clad and insignificant in appearance, now came upon the field and saw his beaten army. But the bulldog in him shut down its teeth and resolved to replace defeat with victory. His greatest qualities, strength and courage in the face of disaster, were now about to shine forth. His countenance showed no alarm. He rode among the men, cheering them to renewed efforts. He strengthened the weak places in the line that his keen eyes saw. He infused a new spirit into the army. His own iron temper took possession of the troops, and that corps of resistance, desperate when he came, suddenly hardened and enlarged. Dick felt the change. It was of the mind, but it was like a cool breath upon the face. It was as if the winds had begun to blow courage. A great shout rolled along the northern line. "'Grant has come!' exclaimed Pennington, who was bleeding from a slight wound in the shoulder, but who was unconscious of it. "'And we've quit retreating!' The Nebraska youth had divined the truth. Just when a complete southern victory seemed to be certain, the reversal of fortune came. The coolness, the courage, and the comprehensive eye of Grant restored the battle for the North. The southern reserves had not charged with the fire and spirit expected, and met with a shattering fire by the Indiana troops, they fell back. Grant saw the opportunity, and massing every available regiment, he hurled it upon Pillow and the southern center. Dick felt the wild thrill of exultation as they went forward instead of going back, as they had done for so many hours. Just in front of him was Colonel Winchester, waving aloft a sword, the blade of which had been broken in two by a bullet, and calling to his men to come on. Warner and Pennington, grimed with smoke and mud and stained here and there with blood, were near also, shouting wildly. The smoke split asunder for a moment, and Dick saw the long line of charging troops. It seemed to be a new army now, infused with fresh spirit and courage, and every pulse in the boy's body began to beat heavily with the hope of victory. The smoke closed in again, and then came the shock. Exhausted by their long efforts which had brought victory so near, the southern troops gave way. Their whole center was driven in, and they lost foot by foot the ground that they had gained with so much courage and blood. Grant saw his success, and he pressed more troops upon his weakening enemy. The batteries were pushed forward and raked the shattered southern lines. Pillow, who had led the attack instead of Floyd, seeing his fortunes pass so suddenly from the zenith to the nadir, gathered his retreating army upon a hill in front of their entrenchments, but he was not permitted to rest there. A fresh northern brigade, a reserve, had just arrived upon the field. Joining it to the forces of Lew Wallace, afterwards famous as a novelist, Grant hurled the entire division upon Pillow's weakened and discouraged army. Winchester's regiment joined in the attack. Dick felt himself swept along as if by a torrent. His courage and the courage of those around him was all the greater now, because hope, sanguine hope, had suddenly shot up from the very depths of despair. Their ranks had been thinned terribly, but they forgot it for the time and rushed upon their enemy. The battle had rolled back and forth for hours. Noon had come and passed. The troops of Pillow had been fighting without ceasing for six hours, and they could not withstand the new attack made with such tremendous spirit and energy. They fought with desperation, but they were compelled at last to yield the field and retreat within their works. Their right and left suffered the same fate. The whole Confederate attack was repulsed. Bull Run was indeed reversed. There the South snatched a victory from defeat, and here the North came back with a like triumph. End of chapter 11, part 2